afternoon. I'm Charles Lee, and this is the Grox Science Show. Coming up on today's program, we're joined by Professor David Desteno, who will talk about out of character. So you want to stay tuned for all that, plus the Grokatron 5000. It's coming right up here on the Grox Science Show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. We all presume that our personality characteristics are immutable, that the person we were yesterday is the same today and tomorrow. But ongoing research is demonstrating how truly in flux our character really is. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor David Desteno. Professor Desteno is an associate professor of psychology at Northeastern University, where he's also director of the Emotion, Cognition, and Social Behavior Lab. Author of numerous research works on the subject, his new book, Out of Character, Surprising Truths About the Liar, Cheat, and Sinner, and saint lurking in all of us explores this topic for a general audience. Professor DeStano, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Sure, thanks for having me on. Well, it's really our pleasure, and this is really a very fascinating book, Out of Character, uh, that you've written, where you talk about really how our personalities and characters are not really as solid as we might think they are. Uh, how did you actually fall into this line of research? Well, as you, as you said in, in the introduction, my lab uh, studies emotion and social behavior, and we study how things like you know jealousy and gratitude and compassion shape the ways we interact with people, whom we trust, whom we don't, when we're willing to cheat, when we're willing to help someone. And after about seven years of doing this type of work, what we realized is that there was a rather compelling story here about how the pieces fit together and what it, it really is showing in, in other people's work as well, not just ours, is that people's moral behavior for, for good or for ill is a lot more variable than any of us would have ever predicted, and that led us to kind of question how character actually works. I see. So no matter really what sort of aspect of character you look at, it's somewhat uh, mutable. Yeah, I mean, what, what we argue in the book, everybody tends to have this view that character is formed very early in life. You know, we, metaphorically, we, we listen to the angel on one shoulder or the devil on the other as we're growing up, and, and that sets the course of our life. But if you look at the data, it, it really just doesn't hold. Really what's happening is kind of below our conscious radar, there are forces, mechanisms in the mind that are in a tug of war. And depending upon what's going on in the situation around us, one side could win. The, the, the one big thing we want to say is it's not good versus evil. It doesn't make sense evolutionarily to say that the mind has evil impulses unless we're talking about pathological minds, but normal human minds don't. What it really is is a battle between short-term gains, that's what's good in the here and now, uh, and long-term gains, what's good in the long term. And sometimes those two things are in, are in opposition, as you might imagine, and we try to understand what, in a situation, tips one person one way or the other. Is there a propensity to lean towards the short-term gain over the long term? Well, Humans tend to have this kind of cognitive bias called discounting. And so, you know, rewards that are a year from now tend to be valued much less than, than rewards that than the same reward that's that's in the present or even a slightly smaller one. 
And so you might say, well, why is that? Well, sometimes gaining a short-term benefit can be very helpful and very expedient for you, and not everybody, of course, makes it to the long term. But if you are expedient too often, then since humans are a social species, we have to live with others who we need to cooperate with and, and, and who need to trust us. And so if you do that too often, you're going to be shunned. And so finding the balance between those two, I think, biologically, is what the mind is always trying to do. Now, we're, we're of course, not arguing for moral relativism. I think, you know, unlike Sam Harris, I'm not arguing that science will tell us what morality should be. I think that's for each person to decide based on their ethical principles or religion. What we're trying to do is tell you how the mind actually works, and it's not just about willpower so that you can chart your own course. I see. So really understanding how our minds are coming about these decisions will allow us, you think, to make better decisions in the short and long term. Sure. So, so for example, people often think that the way to good character is, is just to have, you know, to exert willpower. And we have the study that, that kind of took off after the, the Elliot Spitzer example, which was, we all know Elliot Spitzer was, he spent most of his career, his career fighting against prostitution, then he turned into one of the biggest jobs of, of all time. And the question is, well, is he just morally bankrupt, or is there something that, that allows us all to be hypocritical? The question, of course, is how do we study this in the lab? Because we can't ask people, are you going to be a hypocrite? Most people would say no, uh, or even if they thought they they would, they, they wouldn't do it. And so we have to put people in a situation. And so to make a long story short, we construct a situation where we have two tasks that need to be done, a, a short, fun task and a long, onerous task. And we leave people and we say, here's a coin to flip to decide who gets which task. Whatever one you get, the other person will do the other. And most people think flipping a coin is the fair way to do it. And we leave them. And we watch them on hidden video and see what happens. Well, 90% of the people do not flip the coin. They assign themselves simply the good task. And if you ask them later, how fairly did you act, they'll say, oh, well, you know, I acted okay. We then take the same people, have them watch somebody else do exactly the same thing, and ask them how fairly that person acted. And they just completely condemn that person for the same action that, that they themselves have done. And the question is, well, why, why is that? Well, it's expedient to be a hypocrite now and then because it lets you get away with something that you don't want to do. But if before we ask them uh, how fairly did you act when they didn't flip the coin, if we tie up their ability to engage in rationalization by giving them what's called a cognitive load manipulation, which we have them counting numbers at the same time they're answering these questions, which prevents them from engaging in rationalization, they judge their own behavior as, as, as negatively as someone else's. And so what this shows is that we all have this paying of guilt about committing a fairness transgression. But if we give ourselves 30 seconds to rationalize it away, our conscious mind will. And so what that shows you is it's not just about, you know, reason and willpower. Really, there are kind of intuitive emotional responses where the right ones to follow. And uh, lots of other examples like that. I see. So is it that our minds, or rational minds, that are kind of post hoc assigning a reason for why we do these uh, kinds of things? Yeah, and they're, and they're 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 giving us a reason to justify why we shouldn't listen to that to that long term voice saying no, don't cheat, don't be a hypocrite, because at some point you're you're going to be caught. You know what we argue is that this battle between short term and long term impulses happens at at both levels, at the unconscious and at the conscious. It's not that that one is always better or one is always worse. Um, we have studies on you know compassion. Most people think that why we feel compassion is simply based on the objective facts of, of a tragedy that happened to someone. 
But if you think about it, there are too many people in the world for us to help. And so who should we help? Well, if you follow the ideas of reciprocal altruism, we should help those people who are most likely to pay us back. And so what we show is using a very kind of ancient marker of, of joint purpose, which is called motor synchrony. Uh, it can affect compassion. So we have two people sit down. We have them either tapping their hands in time listening to music or tapping their hands not in time listening to music. To make a long story short, you then see the person who you're either tapping with or not be victimized by someone else and basically be cheated and get stuck doing this, this awful task. Simply having tapped your hands in time with them versus not makes you twice as likely to ask us if you can go help them and to spend twice as long helping that person, even though in both cases the, the objective victimization was exactly the same. So in your book, you also talk about things like prejudice. And is it then that we're really kind of looking for people who are similar in order to increase the viability of our own genes in, in sort of a related spe- uh, related people? Yeah, sure. I mean, if, if you think about it, what, what purpose... I mean, I think we, we can all agree that, that stereotyping and prejudice is a bad thing, uh, something I wish we didn't have. But the question is, it is so prevalent. Why is it prevalent? And really what you know, stereotypes are, are um, categories that we can put people into to make a guess about what they're like. Now, of course, those guesses are often wrong, especially if you know, the information we're learning about groups is biased by what we see in the media. But that's how they function. And so what we show is that even for groups that you've never, ever known, so we simply have people put on red wristbands and blue wristbands, right? And they know nothing about these groups. We give them some funny name, and we tell them these are these groups that we've created, you know, two minutes ago. If we then make people feel angry by constructing a situation that that annoys them, we can kind of measure the, the brain's automatic response to seeing pictures of people who are wearing the blue wristbands or the red wristbands. And what we find is the brain's kind of gut reaction is much more negative to someone who's wearing the opposite wristband color than you. And this is basically forming a prejudice out of thin air. What it's basically telling us is that if you're feeling angry, what that is a single, it's a signal to the mind that conflict is likely in the environment. Evolutionarily, who is conflict more likely to come from? People in your group or people in the other? Of course, people in the other. And so it orients our initial response to them to be much more negative. Uh, because as you're saying, you know, evolutionarily it served a purpose better to be wrong than to be dead. Something that I think we can all, again, strive against because it can lead to discriminatory behavior. This is why, you know, we're not arguing for moral relativism. We're telling you, here's how the mind works, and if you know this, you can correct for it. But given that this sort of behavior seems so fundamental to humans, uh, is it a possible goal that these types of things can be pushed aside? Well, I think certain types of them can. So for groups where there's long-standing hostility between them, it becomes difficult. But for groups where you know very little about them except some stereotypes and you've had not uh, much interaction with people and personal animosity toward them, then I think what you can, if you can simply realize that because you may be having a certain emotional state going into a situation that can color your judgment, you can quickly kind of control those automatic responses. I mean, other things you look at is, is people's moral behaviors and, and judgments. So we'll ask people a range of questions about how do you feel about issues like gay marriage. And what we can show is if we change the emotional state they're in when they think about these things, we can change their judgment. So, for example, if you make you feel disgusted by having you smell a noxious substance, people will say, oh, gay marriage is, is much, uh, I'm much more against that. And the reason why is 
most of us, except for issues we care very deeply about, don't have a really well thought out rational philosophy for why we feel some way about an issue. And so we kind of do a gut check. And if we can manipulate what your gut is feeling, then that's going to manipulate your response downstream. So what does this mean? It means when you're out at the bar and you're deciding, should I flirt with this person or not, even though my, my husband or wife may be home, if you're feeling really happy because you were partying with your friends before, when you do that gut check, there's going to be less of a, of a guilt pain there that says, no, don't do it, even though you normally wouldn't do it. And if you're aware of those things, then you can adjust for them. You bring up also in your book the topic of jealousy and how really it can happen almost in a minute. Sure. Yeah, you know, most people in our culture don't want to admit to being jealous, but one of the most important facets of human social life is to have strong and stable relationships. And so we wanted to study jealousy and show how fundamental it was. And the question was, how do we do this? Well, we simply can't ask people, how jealous are you, because you're going to tell us they're not jealous. So we constructed a situation where we would bring someone in, let's say the, the subject just happens to be female in this case. We've, we've done it with the opposite genders as well. And we have a male actor who she believes is another subject, spend the first 10 minutes working with her on these joint tasks. And his job is to flirt with her and be very pleasant and make her like him. Then we have another person, another female, come into the room as another subject who is late. And while they can only work either in groups of two or alone, and so the male subject has to decide who he's going to work with. And so he decides to work with this new person leaving the original woman he was working with on her own. And if, you know, I'm using these genders, but we've done it both ways. It That evokes tremendous amounts of jealousy, so much so that when we offer these people right afterward, we're doing a taste perception study, and we're having them fill out um, or make samples of very noxious substances for each other to sample. How much jealousy you reported feeling directly predicts how much of this noxious substance you're putting in the sample cup for the next person to taste, even though you know it's going to cause them a lot of discomfort. And so it's a very, very realistic way of showing that within 10 minutes, people are willing to feel jealous over somebody else, and they are willing to act aggressively and punish somebody else for taking that person away from them. And I think most people would never have expected that that they would have done that. Uh, So you mentioned, I think, a little earlier that can sort of overload the the brain's cognitive rational aspects. Are people more likely then to engage in these other types of more self-serving type of behaviors if they're Well, yeah, no, I mean, that's, I think there's been this debate in psychology going back and forth. Should I go with my rational mind or should I go with my gut? And I think to, to make a prediction that you should always go with one is too simplistic. Really, these fighting between these impulses of short-term and long-term gain happen at both levels because humans have lived in as a social species for longer than we've had the cognitive architecture to be able to plan ahead. And so we had to have emotional responses that that helped us seek the long term even then. You know, things that if you're Adam Smith, you would call moral sentiments. And so in the hypocrisy example I gave you there, you know, tying up the rational mind actually led to something we would call more virtuous behavior. People didn't act hypocritically, right? They they saw their own action just, as just as poor. But in other instances, tying up rationality can lead you to engage in, in ways that are more uh, or less desirable. So for example, we know that people find so that, that women, for example, 
example, when they are at their most fertile, will tend to wear clothing that shows a higher percentage of skin. So when, you know, you're not going out thinking that, oh, I'm going to show more skin, but what's happening is subconsciously you're putting yourself in a situation where advances and the opportunities to cheat are more likely to happen. Now, if you know that can happen consciously, you can, of course, correct for that. Um, And so it's really a matter of knowing both on the conscious level and on the non-conscious level how these processes work so that you you realize it's not all about willpower. It's it's often uh, about managing and structuring the situation you're in. The same vein of managing short- and long-term gains, you, you talk about whether uh, people are more prone to play it safe versus gamble and the various calculations that go on in, in people's minds in terms of discussing risk-reward. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing, I mean, one thing, and, and I'm, I'm sure scientists are aware of this, people are very, very poor at, is calculating probability. And so for most people, if you're not an expert gambler, uh, you're, you're not calculating the probabilities of what's happening. You're kind of going with your gut feeling. And what we've shown is that by manipulating people's just emotional state, their judgments for how likely certain events are changes dramatically. So, for example, if we make you feel very happy, your guess how probable it is that you're going to win the next hand goes way up, even if statistically there's no reason why it should go up. Most people aren't paying attention to those things. And so as our emotional states change because of reasons that have nothing to do with the gambling or the mortgage we're taking out or the loan we're signing for, how likely we think we are to be able to handle it and win can change. And so even the person who normally is very careful, if they're feeling someday just very, very happy or excited, are much more likely to take a risk than they normally would. Another topic you cover in the book is pride and how it actually might be good for you. Yeah, right. So pride has, at least in our culture, has a, has a very bad rap. If you look up the, in the thesaurus, you know, 95% of the synonyms for pride are, are negative, arrogance, hubris, etc. But people show pride, and the question is, well, why? If it's so bad, it must do something for us. And what we've shown is that pride is one of these social emotions that I was talking about that can help us take a long-term view. So, you know, oftentimes we have to work hard at something, to persevere at something, to gain abilities that will serve us well in the long run. But it's not fun learning the things and doing the practice initially. And if people are feeling happy, well, they don't want to practice and they don't want to work hard because they want to enjoy that hedonically positive feeling they have. But if you make them feel proud about anything, and in our lab we'll make them feel proud about how many red dots they can count, for example, that is a cue to them to basically take short-term hits in time and effort for long-term gain, and people will actually spend much longer on tasks if they're feeling proud because they they sense at some level that it will lead to a long-term increase in status. And what's really interesting is if we make someone feel pride and we then put them into a group problem-solving situation, the other people, even though they they have no idea who who these people are that they're working with, that one is coming in just feeling proud, that person will emerge as the leader and that person will be the one who is liked the most in the group. And so what what we're seeing is that pride is actually a very uh, attractive expression and the emotional signals that come with it make someone viewed as a leader. Now, of course, if you continue to do this and you actually don't have the abilities to back it up, then it will turn into hubris and, and, and people will clearly shun you. But it can be a very adaptive thing in the short run. In your book, you're really sort of taking a morally neutral view, but you know a lot of the terms, jealousy, pride, prejudice, yeah. have, have a loaded connotation to them. Do you think that mm-hmm. there might be a need for changing the terminology in terms of understanding our brain or talking about it? Well, I think it's 
depends, right? So most people, you know, there are, there are, there are the seven virtues and the seven, and the seven vices, but, you know, so, so wrath is considered a vice. But sometimes, you know, righteous anger can be very useful to uh, instill social norms in people. You know, humility, humbleness is very valued, but if you're too humble, you know, you're not going to climb the corporate ladder. And, uh, you know, most people don't vote for the most humble person as, you know, the leader of the free world when they go to elections. And so I think what we have to understand is what's adaptive uh, if we just, if we're trying to understand virtue in terms of what's adaptive, then it's kind of like Aristotle said: virtue is to be found between the vice of selflessness and selfishness. Um, and biologically, that's what it's all about. But if we're trying to understand what virtue is for all of us as a society, I don't think we need to tie that to biology. I think that's a question that we have to struggle with philosophically. Uh, and once we decide what that is for us, then knowing how biological virtue in the mind works, we can kind of modify it toward toward that goal. As opposed to someone like Sam Harris, as you've mentioned before, you really don't think that science can inform a fundamental definition of morally good or bad. I don't think we can because, you know, I mean, you can take the example of is it better to sacrifice one life for many? Many people would say yes, but I think there's an equally valid argument to say, well, no, hurting any life can be uh, something that, that we don't want to do. And I, I don't see science as providing the answers to those questions. I see science as, as providing an answer to, to what the brain will choose on its own, you know, automatic accord at a very gut level in those situations. But whether or not we want to say that's the right way to go, I, I just don't see science providing those answers. Hmm. So then as a, a practical matter for people, how then do they merge the various conflicting aspects of their personality in terms of guiding their behavior, do you think? Yeah, I, I think what you have to be aware of is is that it's, one, it's, it's not all about willpower. It's about understanding how subtle factors in, in the environment that we've talked about in, in, in the book can manipulate you and, and push you toward uh, taking acting in a more short-term focused way or a more long-term focused way in any situation. And once you know that, then whatever your your you know, moral goals are, um, or your societies are, you're in a much better position to control what you do moving forward. I, I think, you know, in some ways what this book is, is it's kind of a, a user's guide. Here's how the system works, and here's why you may have had problems in the past, because you didn't quite understand um, understand the way the mind worked. Do you think that there are some societies that are perhaps innately better at dealing with these sorts of issues? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I, I know we, we all marveled after after the, the Japanese earthquake uh, about the the level of solidarity people showed. You know, there was there was no looting. There was there was supporting of each other. Um, and so the question is, you know, why may that be? I think if you look at Japanese culture, what you'll see is a much greater feeling of of interconnectedness uh, and less kind of individual focus than we have in the United States. And so one might argue that being acculturated in that society tends to give people a slightly greater focus on on the long-term side. However, there are clearly vices in Japanese society as well. And so it's 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 a hard it's a hard question to answer, and I think that's what gives us the cultural variation we have, but on a societal level we'll have to decide what is good. I mean there are, there are some basic, you know, cause no harm, do 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 good to others, but there are nuances that I just think science isn't going to give us the answer for. Well, it, uh, it really is a fascinating topic. I'm just uh, curious if you have any final words regarding your book, uh, Out of Character. 
I, I think it is it's designed to be to be very accessible and approachable and to be a mix of scientific uh, experiments with uh, applications to real world examples and um, my sense uh, hopefully is that is that people will in reading it see some of their own behavior and it will help them make more more sense of it well it really is a great book and I hope people will go take a look at it it's called out of character surprising truths about the liar cheat sinner and saint lurking in all of us uh, and professor de Stano, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me on. And you're just listening to Professor David Esteno talking about his book, Out of Character. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, Grokatron 5000. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, good moral character or not. So for the falling five inanimate objects, uh, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if uh, you think uh, they possess good moral character or not. Okay. <laughs> and uh, a little reason why. All right, uh, ready to play the game? Sure. Okay, uh, item number one, good moral, co- moral character or not, it's the iPod. The iPod. Yes, it's just beautiful in design. <laughs> and anything that good-looking has to be good, right? That's right. All right. Uh, number it's a Hostess Devil's Food Cake. Well, no, it's got the word devil in it. <laughs> it's got to be that. Uh, all right. Number number three, uh, Texas Hold'em Poker. Hmm. Texas Hold'em Poker. I have to say bad moral character because it's got a lot of temptation. <laughs> Uh, number four, uh, Walmart. Oh, Walmart, bad. <laughs> <laughs> Lines are too long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and finally, number five, good moral character or not, it's the drug Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, uh, I would say, can be either. Can be used to, to, to help cement relationships that you have or to get you in trouble with ones that you don't. <laughs> right. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, we want to thank you for sticking around playing a game and, again, uh, talking about your book, Out of Character. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. And you're just listening to Professor David DeSteno talking about his book, Out of Character. This has been the Grok Science Show. We'll be back in two weeks with more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to see us, you can do so on the web, www.groks.net, or email, science at groks.net. We are on Facebook and Twitter. Have a great afternoon.